Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. This is your friend Hopalong Cassidy. I want to tell you the story about the time Lucky, California, and I went into town for an evening. We got all dressed up, as you can see if you look at us on page one of your picture book. There was a big square dance going on at the town hall. Lucky and California were pretty anxious to go. By the time we got there, things were well underway and the whole town was dancing. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and this is the True Tunes Podcast. On this episode, we will again revisit the True Tunes 30-year class reunion event that took place last July in Aurora, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, and today we'll hear excerpts from our conversations with veteran songwriter Michael McDermott and Jeff Elbell's interview of me, your host. Yes, the tables turned, metaphorically speaking, and Jeff asked me some really good questions about the history and future of True Tunes. so fast I couldn't comprehend it I was first maybe I was last in confusion had descended I was amazed by what had transcended to the pages of time faith is a wall I must climb You'll definitely hear the nerdy fanboy and the enthusiastic friend come out in my side of the conversation with Michael McDermott here next. Michael has been one of my favorite songwriters and artists ever since his first single, A Wall I Must Climb, came on my television via MTV back in 1991. He was a mainstream artist, always, but always wrestling with issues of faith and spirit. I interviewed him for True Tunes News back in 91, and we kept in touch over the years. Many critics, including some major names like author Stephen King, have sworn that McDermott would end up being recognized alongside the greatest American songwriters, Dylan, Petty, Springsteen. So far, that has not happened outside of a small, passionate base of fans and friends. But now that Michael is healthier and more productive than ever, this could be his time. Michael was our surprise guest at the reunion. We were honored to have him and thrilled to have a short sit-down after the set. How many artists can start their career with a song that is so freaking prophetic? Mm. You are a wall you must climb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, like in a lot of ways, you have, uh, and you've been real public about it lately, yes. talking about you being your own worst enemy in a lot yes, of ways. Yes, I but was. You've, uh, you've had a, quite a challenge 
getting I over have, that. I so. feel, so I'm five years clean and sober, so I feel like literally, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Go ahead and drink. You're all drunks, I know. But uh, <laughs> no, I feel like I'm five years old. Emotionally, I am. I'm, you know, I, I stunted my growth for a long time there. You know, so every day is new. And even when I see, uh, you know, I've gotten off Facebook temporarily to try to, you know, because I think that's a very divisive thing. And uh, um, when I see posts from like two years ago, and you know, post-election, and it was so rage-filled, it sounded like I was a crazy drunk. And I was like, wow, man, because nobody likes to be talked to like that. Right. You know, and I realized, you know, I'm going to just I'm gonna let them figure, you know, like, we have differences of, of opinion. I understand the anger, you know. Uh, so, yeah, so it's been, so I just, even from a post two years ago, I saw just the other day, I was kind of like, oh, my God. I was cringing. A lot of people don't understand that aspect of, of recovery. I, I haven't experienced it. It's not like I'm saying that, that uh, I know what you're feeling, but, but having walked through that kind of journey with people, that that concept of arrested development is yeah. real. That, you. that you're yeah. kind of starting from square one. There's an old man at the counter, and he couldn't feed himself. No one seemed to make a move to offer any help. The waitress didn't notice. She went about her day Passed out at the bus stop Bearded man did lay No one got too close to check If he was okay He had a tattoo of Semprify And God bless the USA This world will break your heart this world will break your heart This world will break your heart In a thousand different ways The other thing though that I, I'd love to talk about a little bit, there's a lot of artists who think they need uh, some sort of substance. They need some kind of grease to help the artistic process. Yes. Um, how has it been different for you going through the songwriting process, the artistic process, clean versus with that? Yeah, crush? well, see, I never, I never, uh, I would never work when I was uh, in a state of uh, chaos, kind of. You know, I wouldn't do. I had too much respect for the the process, so I would never write when I was out of my mind. You know? Oh, okay. And uh, but just in terms of life, the clarity is different. Uh, I, I didn't start that way. The drinking and the drugs happened when I, you know, suffered disappointment, you know, and let felt I let a lot of people down. That was the thing that led me to, you know, just totally try to kill myself. Really, it was just, it was a half finished suicide, really. And um, and I'm uh, glad you suck at suicide. I'm sorry. I'm glad you suck at suicide. Yeah, yeah I do. I do. Yeah. I do. Well, I was pretty good. Uh, I mean, I got really close. And um, but yeah, so it, it, I, the the work. I, I, but the work is different. It's it's a, it's, uh, it's the optics of of the way you see life are different. Yeah, I don't want to be a folk singer anymore. Yeah, I want to hear some big guitar See people jumping on the floor And we'll all raise our hands together And let out a roar Cause I don't want to be a folk singer anymore I mean, I've been studying and enjoying your work since the beginning mm. But the last few records, you've hit a different gear It's still you, yeah. it's still the same DNA but you, it feels to me like 
um, you've been willing to go into some very personal places where in the past maybe sure. there have been other devices. Right. I, yes. I'm not going to tell this about myself. I'm going <laughs> right. to either create a puppet or right. I'm going to talk about somebody else. Right. Um, so what are some examples of some songs in the last few projects where you thought, man, I never could have done that? Before? I don't know. I, I don't. Uh, for me, it's because uh, people say, did you realize this record was so good? Like, oh, I think they're all good. You know, uh, I don't I don't I can't think of anything specific that I uh, I try not to think really when I write. It's just a. It's just a stream, really. You know, you try to get a net and get the best fish. Right. Yeah. That that Cal Sag song. <laughs> yeah. uh, I remember when uh, we got the the latest one, and Shell and I were <clears throat> driving somewhere. And is it that is that the first song on the yeah. record? Yeah. <laughs> she was like, "Are you sure he's okay?" <laughs> so, you know, because it's kind of about a it's about a murderer who, yeah. who uh, you know, kind of takes yeah. picks up these girls and yeah, things don't go well. Yeah, and um. But then I said, actually, this isn't, a, it's not really about, it, it's about him. Like, it's it's kind of about the thing, the id or something. Yeah, and you, right. That, yeah. You know, and you've got to have a little bit of objectivity at sure. that point to be able to see that monster in yourself. Right, because I never want to write songs to start with, like, I woke up, to, or whatever, just like, I is just a boring topic, I think. I'm boring. So, like, you try to create characters or whatever that right. kind of carry that cross sometimes. I'd had a day from hell, but it wouldn't be my first. I crawled back in my shell, but I was dying there of thirst. I was in need of some music, in need of a friend, in need of getting drunk again. Uh, the last few years, it, am I right? It seems like the the traction has the wheels have been getting some good grip on yes. the road. Things so what have what have, what's been going on with you? Well, just I, I've, uh, just touring a lot more than I did, and I can't imagine I, I would have been able to do this, uh, you know, uh, afflicted. So it's good that my sobriety worked out with success. I think there's a no coincidence there. So it's just a, a lot of travel, but it's like you know, uh, 16 flights in 19 days, that kind of life, you know, which is hard to have. You know, I have a daughter, and uh, that makes it very difficult. And glad for FaceTime, but it's a uh, it's it's really it's like a life in reverse i think you know i've kind of um i i i, I died a while ago and i feel you know new yeah i gotta go to work gotta go to work today hey hey yeah i gotta go to work gotta go to work today Telling you, brother, if I had my brothers right here in bed, I'd lay. But I gotta go to work, gotta go to work today. One of the things that has always been interesting, and I think you do very uniquely, is, uh, and I can't remember, I know Bono said this, but I'm not sure if it originated with him, that the best songs are written by people either running toward or away <laughs> from God. Yeah. And... I appreciate that about your work on both extremes, that there's this hauntedness, or Flannery O'Connor calls it the God-haunted mm -hmm. syndrome, um, and that that your the way you use, the way you reference, the way you use symbolism and imagery and the way you reference your own faith is, is often in the context, it's probably more often in the context of doubt than in anything resembling confidence. Right. But still, that doubt kind of 
makes that thing there. It legitimizes it on some level. I think you know, like I always say, my my journey with faith is it's a game of hide and seek, really. And and it's true about that priestly. I would just would have been a, you know, one of the priests that you know you read about or is excommunicated, you know. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, so I knew I wanted to do something. I, I wanted to. I do believe in the idea that we are all in this together, and um, and I think that it's um, it's just important. I think what what true tunes is is a very important thing, and I, I'm glad you embraced me then because I wasn't ready to say maybe all the things I was supposed to say because you, you know right say, yeah. yeah and and it's weird because like you know certain you know I remember after one show somebody came up and said. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about your show. And I said, yeah, why is that? And he said, well, have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior? I'm like, it's, it's, a, it's a personal, you just, you know, is your personal savior. So it's personal, dude. It's none of your business. And then he wouldn't like me unless I was willing to, you know, raise the flag for him. You know, and it's just like, and I don't, that kind of, I don't want to, uh, I didn't want to pander. God help us. We did our best to never do that, but we opened the door, and as far as I know, we were the only kind of uh, presence on that side of the world that ever talked about you. And so I remember one time you you would tell me these weird stories Mm -hmm. about the Christian people that found you, and you knew that they came from me. You were like, I met another one of your people, (laughs) you said at one show. I met another one of your people, and he said this weird thing, and I'm like... I'm sorry. Uh, I can see it. They're not they, all my people. I can I'm, see I, it in their eyes when they approach yeah, me. I was <laughs> that's like, one of John's like, people. I read about you in True Tunes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, I went back and I read that article that we did, and I found I found some of the tapes, like uh, uh, cassettes. So I'm going to try and digitize some of that and include of us some in old tunes or yeah. something. Yeah, it was. I could, I'm, yeah, it was like one of those pubs. Yeah. Um, and um, and I do remember. I, I appreciated even then the way that you were thoughtful in Christian music world, they work with those bands to the point of absurdity to make sure that they answer the questions right. With, right. with pre-scripted answers. And I would often have to trick them into giving me interesting material. Um, <laughs> I would have to ask them sideways questions or things that made no sense to get them off their right. little script. And some bands enjoyed it so much that then we could get to something interesting. Right. Um, but with yours, I read it and I'm like, there's such a difference when you're talking to someone who's not coming from that place. You had nothing to hide, you had yeah. no agenda, but you also weren't used to people coming and trying to find uh, a point of resonance that had to do with that spiritual yeah. side. Well, I mean, you know, it was a, obviously I was steeped in it, you know. I mean, I, I you know, I was in church going every day and, and I remember I just, I was thinking, you know, of all the cheesy pictures my mom had of Jesus. My favorite one, or painting, not a picture. That'd be amazing. Um, <laughs> um, was him laughing, you know? And I always had, oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah, there's yeah. a laughing one. I'm just like, I'm sure he has a good sense of humor. Oh, are you kidding me? Do you yeah. know the people he hung out with? The <laughs> right? disciples were Absolutely. idiots. They didn't and understand it, anything. Yeah, he and as a drug addict, I do want to say, there's, I've, in all the different rooms I've talked and and uh, have spirited debate about faith in Jesus or whatever your uh, denomination is. Uh, crack houses are the best really talks about Jesus. I mean, and really, and I say that as a joke, but it's true because they 
all those people I would be in those rooms with were all people looking. All people that were trying to fill an internal void with an external force. And that's kind of what we all do. We try to fill this thing and, and it's a search. And I, I love people. I love searchers. famous quote that says every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is really looking for God yeah you know that's and great. the the that's what I think I mean about the, the, your songs even the ones that are the darkest and the most searching uh, you're tapping into something that a lot of quote-unquote Christian artists either feel like they're not allowed to do yeah. or have never really been mentored or empowered yeah. to do um, as you're looking at this phase of your career the way everything has changed with no labels with yeah. no uh, kind of superstructure around you to support you um, you just got back from doing a tour in Europe. Yeah. You're, like you said, you're busier than you've ever been. Yeah. Um, how uh, how has is the creative process changed? Are you writing songs from a different perspective? Are you incorporating different stories? Do you think about it in terms of the marketing of it or the? It's different now. It's um, I, you do still kind of think about what you, you know. You don't want to be repetitive, which I am at times, and that's my uh, thing I worry about most. So, but you're doing a you're doing a another Kickstarter. You've yeah. had good luck with having yes, fans, have, yeah. basically. Yeah, with Kickstarter is a huge thing, which is a fan funding thing, and it's uh, the generosity of others, I mean, uh, that uh, that enable me to do these things, right. you know. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, man, if you guys get a chance to see him do a, a full show, band show, yes. and also, t um, you do the, and I gotta see this someday, I've never seen it, but the Halloween <laughs> Halloween steam. Steam. Yes. So he on Halloween, he does an all Bruce Springsteen yes. um, Bruce tribute yeah. show. Yeah. And then what's the other... You do another kind of theme show, don't you? Some other time? No, just a uh, city winery, uh, Mischief and Mistletoe. That's the other yeah, Christmas one, yeah. right? Um, so, how can people follow you and keep track of what you're doing? What's the That's, best? Uh, Michael-McDermott.com. Right. So get on there and subscribe and follow it and make sure. And you got a, quite a catalog, and you brought some stuff that you I can did, yeah. sell tonight, um, so you guys can support that. But uh, man, just thank you so much, and I can't wait to hear all that. But the new stuff you did yeah, tonight was you. great. But um, just thank you for doing thank this. Thank you, John. And, Thanks yeah, for bringing awesome. True Tunes yeah, back. Absolutely, yeah. Michael McDermott, everybody. I want to thank Michael once again for joining us that night, and his new music is in production right now, and you definitely will be hearing more about Michael McDermott, both here on the podcast and on the weekly mixtape. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the True Tunes podcast. I've long been fascinated by the music and the story behind one of my absolute favorite albums of the 80s, After the Fire's ATF. 
It was the only album by the UK band ever released in the US, and it was actually a compilation of material from several other projects that they had previously released. By the time the band started to break in the US, with their English language cover of the German artist Falco's song Der Kommissar, After the Fire had been playing together and releasing music for over a decade. In fact, they were already on their last gasp. For the purposes of the jukebox, we're going to talk about ATF, the US album that I obsessed over. It's a mind-blowing combination of 70s prog rock influences with early 80s new wave synth elements and songs that wrestled with spiritual and cultural themes that were highly relevant to a Christian kid like me in much the same way that you too did. But first, just a bit of historical context. After the Fire was formed in London in 1972 by keyboardist Peter Banks, who later changed his name to Memory Banks, how cool is that, to avoid any confusion with the Peter Banks of Genesis, along with guitarist and vocalist Andy Piercy, drummer Iva Twydell, and bassist Nick Battle. They became a successful local London band, played at the famous Greenbelt Festival, and released a really impressive progressive rock album called Signs of Change in 1978. After some lineup changes and a stylistic evolution to a more synth rock sound, the band released an album, also only in the UK, called Laser Love, and had some radio success there with the single One Rule For You, a song that, interestingly, seemed to suggest the idea that while it was okay for artists to share other kinds of ideas and beliefs in their songs, to mention Christian beliefs was off limits. What kind of line is happening? You say you don't understand a single word. The band came back with another album, Batteries Not Included, in 1982, but nothing much came of it. As a rabid fan, later I tracked down all of those, of course, but my introduction, at the age of 13, came with ATF, the collection that CBS Records put out in the States. The record opens up with Laser Love, and just like that, I was hooked, and I could tell right away that it was about a higher love. I bopped around my room like a maniac. Dancing in the Shadows had that subtle reggae influence that so many UK artists dabbled in back in the early 80s. The slashing guitars added a great edge to all the synths, too. Love Will Always Make You Cry was a straight-up pop song that I expected to hear on the radio, but never did.
Elements of the band's prog rock roots showed up on songs like Sailing Ship, Starflight, and the instrumental 1980F. Unfortunately, it was too late for After the Fire. Vocalist Andy Piercy tried to keep it going and did release some other great music, while the other members went their separate ways. A friend of mine set me up to meet Piercy several years ago and I totally nerded out. He's still involved in music, working at a church here in the States, and involved with the Porter's Gate worship projects that have been coming out over the last couple of years. Sadly, the ATF album is out of print. Most of the songs, but not all of them, are on Spotify. If you can find the vinyl, it's not expensive, I recommend picking it up. It's an excellent example of imaginative songwriting and production, and was way ahead of its time. I can't take the criticism I'm eating up with cynicism All the colors in the prism Entering my eyes Still can't change my mind I'm a stubborn goat Getting older A cube of ice Getting colder Frozen heart and frozen shoulders That is what I've got Sweetheart, I'm not. The Avid Brothers have been making music together for nearly 20 years now, and depending on how you count these things, their latest full-length release, Closer Than Together, is something like their 10th album. But even with a musical coming out soon, a recent documentary film, a large and devoted following that's big enough to fill arenas, the Avid Brothers are admirably unafraid to take risks. And here's the thing. Risk-taking is more core, I think, to the essential DNA of great folk music than even the acoustic guitar. With songs that combine humor, self-reflection, social commentary, spirituality, and even some unabashed political rumination, the Avits carve their name next to those of artists like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Joni Mitchell, and even Bob Dylan. Not every song on Closer Than Together is perfect, but on the whole, it's one impressive collection. But I'm lying in the snow So nobody knows I'm dying If I stand on my feet Will the plan be complete? Or is the plan me not trying? Over the span of 13 songs and 55 minutes, Scott and Seth Avitt and their various supporting cast members craft a collection of songs that is both panoramic and intimate. The fence posts are set intentionally wide, with an opening track that rocks hard and raw, not terribly unlike something one might find on a Raconteurs or Black Keys record. Interesting that the track, a pensive paean to division and strife, is called Bleeding White. Track 2 whiplashes the listener into an almost Brian Wilson-inspired bit of Beach Boys pop dripping with rolling and winsome melody, and with a theremin-like note chiming through the middle like a clean conscience. Its acoustic simplicity is quite sublime. Tell the Truth is all about the human voice and its power to wound or heal. Tell the truth to yourself And the rest will fall in place Tell the truth to yourself And the rest will fall in place I lied to the doctor I lied 
from there, the record combines mostly strong folk ballads, like the boldly honest historical reflection, We Americans, which attempts to take that tell-the-truth-to-yourself instruction to heart, as it contemplates what it means to be a modern American, and even a follower of God, as it takes the form of a prayer. Long Story Short takes a traditional 3-4 time story song form and paints vivid character sketches before delivering a gut punch final line. Bang Bang leans, as many of the band's songs have lately, on the piano, with a sort of parlor pop sound that gently lightens the pointed and deeply personal message about the way violent entertainment seems to be bleeding into real life. New Woman's World playfully but poignantly tackles the failure of patriarchy in a sadly buoyant and confessional tone that harkens to some of the best early 70s brand of Americana-inflected pop. It used to be a man's world, but we didn't treat it right. It used to be a man's world, but all we did was fight. I'm glad it's finally in the hands of the women and I can't wait to see what they do with what's left of the world. One of the most surprising tracks has got to be the first single, High Stepping, with its 80s arpeggiated synth intro and its crazy catchy melody. We get what may serve as a sort of theological center of the album. First place ain't easy. The hardest part is believing. The very last word is love. It's hard not to think of Matthew 20, verse 16. The last will be first, and the first will be last. John 6, 60. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So go ahead and think of those scriptures. They certainly aren't the only biblical ideas to bubble up on this set. Well, it's warfare out there, folks. You're either working for success or to be rich or... God help us famous, or you're working against the clock just to stay afloat. Got your nose all scraped up from the grindstone. You're digging for diamonds and only finding rhinestones. Meanwhile, it's August and the tax man has never heard of summer vacation. You're either working on yourself or you're looking after babies, taking care of your old man or your old lady. And the direct line to the hospital just says, leave a message. See, you can only live one day at a time only drive one hot rod at a time. Only say one word at a time and only think one thought at a time. And every soul is alone when the day becomes night. And there in the dark, if you can try to see the light in the most pitch black shape of the loneliest shadow, well then you ought to sleep well, because there's hope for sure. Well, I don't know about all that being true, but I do know this. The best beggars are choosers. Closer than together, with its combined unctions and confessions, its romance and humor is one of the most textured, nuanced, and deeply theological albums of the last several years. All I can say is amen. And now back to Aurora and Jeff Elbell's merciless grilling of yours truly. 
As you heard on the last episode of the podcast, Jeff Elbell is a serious rock journalist. So when the idea came up to have him interview me at the reunion, I jumped at it. As you'll definitely be able to tell, Jeff and I are also good friends with decades of history. But he came prepared. So I hate to do this in front of your friends, but uh, there was a rumor I heard long ago. Uh, so tell me, is it true that True Tunes really began as uh, strictly as a means for you to meet girls? Girl. Yeah, just one. Uh, yeah. I just had one girl in mind, and I did the whole thing to meet her, and I married her, and it was 28 years ago, and she's, I got her in my band, and then I was stuck <laughs> because I had this whole thing, and I had to just keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I will Worked say out. The, the funny little grain of truth to that is that I made no sense in this world. I felt like I made no sense. I was into music that almost nobody cared about, and I thought it was way more important than anybody else did. And then I went to Cornerstone, and I felt like, oh my gosh, it's like the stars aligned, the planet shifted or something. I felt like I found my home planet. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I could just get girls to see me here, <laughs> I make sense here. Like, like when I walk around here, I, it's like they would get it, right? right? In the normal world, I make no sense, like at all. So you, you try, so then I just thought, well, whoever is gonna hang with me has got to be able to go through that cornerstone gauntlet. And then if they can hang with that, not only will I know that they're worth my time, but they will, I can frame myself much better at cornerstone than anywhere else. And True Tunes was just literally a way, when I was 14 and I was at the first cornerstone festival and I saw that, I said, this can't end on Sunday afternoon. There has to be a way for this community of fans and people to keep talking to each other. And so I went home and I wrote out a manifesto in a notebook and I came up with the name maybe, a, a, maybe later that year. But the whole manifesto was like, how can all these people stay in touch with each other all year? And that's what True Tunes was based on when I was 14, was like a magazine, concerts, a radio station, um, a record label, uh, all that stuff was all about that. So yes, it was about, because I thought someday I will find a girl in that pile of humanity. <laughs> but, but, yeah, right, but, but how do you build community without Facebook? Yes, Cell exactly. phones. Exactly, right, exactly. Yeah. No email. No. So, different. What was your first job? Or the job that led to True Tunes, the glamorous, oh, yeah. the glamorous so My first job. job was Ponderosa for two weeks, and I quit because they kept making me work on Sundays two weeks in a row, and I wasn't going to do that. But then I started working at Wheaton Religious, and the funny thing there was that I went to every Christian bookstore within uh, a few miles of our house in Glen Ellen, uh, right outside of Wheaton, and they all knew me because I haunted them asking for hard-to-find Christian music. I annoyed them is what I did. And... Um, they uh, and I went to them when I was just about to turn 16 and I offered them all the same deal which is a great way to interview for a job I went in and I said you know who I am I, I want to work here and I demand minimum wage and I will do anything you want I will clean your toilets I will uh, vacuum the floors I will even sell precious moments figures with a straight face I've been practicing uh, you know at grandma's house I will do all of that but my conditions are I want to run the music department because I have a vision. And if you let me do this, I promise you I will double whatever your music sales are in one year. How a 15 year old knows right. that he could do that is, I mean, I didn't, I was making stuff up completely. But all of the stores offered me a job, but none of them would let me touch the music department. 
except the Catholic store in Wheaton, Wheaton Religious. Um, that guy said, how do you feel about, you know, saint statues? And I was like, oh, I don't know which one does what. So you know, you'll have to tell me. Like, like, they all have special powers. Like, like, um, all right. You can't put the six-inch, the six-foot Saint Christopher on your dashboard. No, right. And I like action figures. I'm a Star Wars nut, so I'm like, that's cool. Um, and I said, uh, I said, I'm Episcopalian, right? Like, we're like Catholics without a pope, and and we have the garments and the incense, and so. I didn't care. I really honestly did not see, I was in a liturgical church that really loved Jesus and had a very high regard for the Bible. And I was not, I had no problem with Catholicism. I didn't, I, 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 as long as they were excited about God and Jesus and all that stuff, I, I was fine with that. And so, um, and they had a good sense of humor, obviously. And my, my hair is sticking up and I, you know, I was a weird kid, but, they took me up on my offer and they and I worked my butt off and not only did they let me manage the music department but the owner mentored me. Phil Tasketta was like uh, uh, an amazing person in my life. He taught me how to do management, he taught me how to do inventory, he taught me the basics of marketing and customer service and all that kind of stuff. So um, that was my first job and that was boot camp for then what became True Tunes. Oh, so I started at Wheaton Religious in the summer of 86, and by, and that was when I was 16, and then when I graduated from high school, actually the fall before I graduated from high school, I presented Phil with a business plan for True Tunes, and he accepted it, and he agreed to finance and back the whole thing. So we spent about nine or 10 months setting the stage, and um, and then in 80, June 10th of 89, it was when we opened up uh, the, the, the doors on our own separate business. Wow. That's and he was the owner. I mean, he financed the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then the plan was, as it would be, when it became profitable, I would buy it back from him. And how much did you increase the music sales at Wheaton oh, Religious? Yeah, it took six months for us to double the music sales, and then six months we doubled them again. And, uh -huh. you know, that kept happening. So that was a lucky break. I had no idea how it <laughs> But honestly, I think, I, I think that it was because... Bluff. Yeah, no, and it... I, it wasn't a bluff. I mean, I honestly believed that if you just put some attention, and there had been a, a guy, Matt Wilgus, who was a real fan of this music, and so that music department at Wheat Religious was already better than most of the ones. It was just really small. And so I knew that anytime, I knew there was a market for stuff, and I knew it wasn't getting served, and so I had a really good feeling, by having been to Cornerstone, that all I needed to do was connect that market to this stuff and do a better job than anybody else was doing, and then they yes. would come. And what was wild was to have a Catholic store full of nuns and punk rock kids and heavy metal kids and sacred warrior guys hanging out all the time with, you know, like, I, there's a picture also on the Facebook thing of me with my crazy hair with a sacred homemade sacred warrior display that I got in super big trouble from a nun from because it had this cardboard sword that said rebellion on it and had blood on it and this nun was super mad like she was really upset and Phil in his wisdom said okay sister um, and she, he calls me to the back and he says John you're gonna have to talk to sister so-and-so she's really upset and he throws me in his office with an angry nun I, I never went to Catholic school but I got all of it in like one hour when this this sister was just furious at how inappropriate this was and I said, well, and I listened to her, 
I let her speak her piece and then I got the record out and I read the lyrics to the album to her and I explained what we were trying to do. And by the end of that meeting, she invited me to come speak at the church for first all of the other nuns and then all of the kids in the youth group there. And Phil taught me something about how to deal with people when they're confronting you and absorb their anger, absorb their rage, and then listen to what the underlying thing is. And he, he just knew that I had the heart I wanted to solve that thing. And I mean, those things, I learned that stuff. I, I'm so blessed to have. But still, had, he was on the other side of a bar door, he was, I presume. He was cracking up. Oh. He was on the back thing <laughs> laughing and telling everybody, wait, 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 wait. John's in there because of the rebellion sword and sister so-and-so is just yeah. giving it to him. It was awesome. So then the other thing I'm curious about in terms of putting the timeline together is after, after you're open. Uh, what was it, 210 West Front? Was that the right yeah, address? That was the second location. Yeah. That was the long-term one. Uh, how long did it take to start publishing physical magazine? Or, you know, tell me the story about the, the, the fax version, how it evolved. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, because physical started right away, but it was because Phil heard me on the phone. Every Thursday night, we were open till 9. And I had to work every Thursday night till 9. But word spread around the country that there was this one place that you could call and order really hard to find music. And there was this guy there that you could call and talk to. And so the phone would start ringing at five o'clock and I would end up on the phone all night talking to people from all over the US and Canada. And Phil noticed that I was saying the same things over and over again. And he told me one night, he's like, you've got to actually do your job. You can't be on the phone all night. So he's like, why don't you write this stuff down and send it to people instead of just saying it over and over again? So the first magazine was handwritten stuff every Thursday and people would give me their fax number and I would fax it to them and say, here's the new Vector record or here's the new this and the book. Yeah. And I would just say, here's the update this week. And then Wheaton Religious had a fully developed mail order company. They, they, had, they shipped stuff all over the country. So they, could sh they, they were ready to go as far as shipping stuff. So then we started, um, we started this little half-size folded over photocopied magazine catalog thing where we would cram as much editorial in and then lots of pages of, of catalog stuff. And we would ship that out and people would order stuff. And, and Greg Sylvester, who we really wish could be here today, Greg worked at a print shop somewhere in downtown Wheaton. He was, he was a little kid to me. I mean, he was a couple years younger, but I was a kid. And Greg uh, would Photoshop stuff. I'm not Photoshop like the program, like working in a shop that did yep. photos. Like it was all physical and really rudimentary. Um, he went on to become a Grammy nominated graphic designer for Smashing Pumpkins and Madonna and that kind of stuff. Um, super talented uh, graphic artist, illustrator kind of guy. So um, the talent, the opportunity, the, the community that was around there, we were just trying to meet a need. And um, what funny piece about that was that my counselor in high school had told me that some of my aptitudes were writing and communicating and marketing and stuff. And I said, no, I want nothing to do with any of that yeah. stuff. I'm never going to be a writer. I don't want anything to do with business. And Paul Scott, who's right there in the door jam, Paul, uh, Paul was a huge help. He was the one that forced me into the computer era. Like I was terrified of email and terrified of chat rooms. And Paul one night was like, all these people are on the internet and they all want to hear from you. And you just got to go into this chat room and just answer questions. And I was like, no, that's scary. I don't want to go into a chat room. He's like, you don't have to physically do anything. You can sit in your office. And I was, I just didn't want to do it. And so he said, 
I'll tell you what. I will sit there. I will read out the question to you. You answer it, and I will type it in. And I said, uh, okay, so I don't have to touch a computer. And he said, no, I'll do it all. So we did some AOL chat room on the internet, and he set it all up, and I'm sitting in my chair, and I'm, I'm like, I'm, I don't know why I was so anxious about it. He's like, 9 o'clock or whenever it was, go. And I'm like, how many people are there? He's like, 30. Now there's 60 and there's 90 or 100 or whatever it is. And the number keeps going up. He's like, somebody's got a question about this vigilante's a love thing or this sixpence thing. And he's asking questions and I'm answering them. And then the number, I see the number going up of how many people are joining the room. And I just freaked out. I'm like, cancel it. Turn it off. Unplug the internet. I can't handle it. Because I'm going to let somebody down. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'll be exposed. turn off the internet. And Paul was like, what is your problem? Like, fax them all tomorrow. Like, I, 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 it's funny. So the club came along. Phil knew that I wanted a venue. I kept doing shows. Like I, I promoted shows. Randy was a big part of that because Randy knew how to do, he had a PA and lights. And, and so often we would do shows wherever we found a, a space. So we did shows before the warehouse even had this building. We had other buildings. The warehouse kind of moved around Aurora. But there was also, it was called the Harkness Center, like right down the street over here. Yeah, First Press, that's right. And they had a room, and so Resband actually played over there, and I did an Altar Boys show over there, and maybe some others. So True Tunes was putting on shows when we didn't have a venue, and Phil knew that, and he, he saw that when we did some of those shows, a lot of people were coming. So when that, he owned that building and rented the downstairs, so when the upstairs became available, he let us take that over as long as we did all the work to renovate it, which was, it took almost a year to do that. And the city almost didn't let us do it after we did all the work. But we did that in 94, and um, in the two years that that club was open, we had over 500 sets. Now there, there were sometimes three or four in a night. Sometimes there was more than that, but um, over 500 sets. And there were some really big bands that played their POD and Sixpence and those kinds of things. But there's lots of little bitty bands, you know, that, that played there. And uh, it took a lot of friends, Randy and other people coming and covering shifts. Jen, I think, did that sometimes. Did you come and cover shifts? Jen Violent or um, Jen Gunn, sorry. Um, and um, uh, so it was a real community thing, but the club was there until the whole thing shut down. So that was going right up until the end when the, when a company from Virginia bought True Tunes with plans to franchise the whole thing and expand it. But it, in less than a year, they launched TrueTunes.com, but they shut down everything else. Everything. They shut down the print magazine. They shut down the store. They shut down the club, um, everything else. And then my office was on the other side of that door. If you went up, there's like a little bitty ticket box office. You could touch all of the walls without moving. That's how small it is. And that was my office. At least I got to be with Randy every day, but it was like a little prison cell. It was it was not cool. It, I mean, on that level, the, the being with Randy part was cool, but the other part that I was yeah. basically a customer service rep for a failing internet right. mail order company for the next couple of years, and that was terrible. Oh, and then how that feeds into the future, other than the fact that the whole, when it was working, it was, not only was it profitable, it, it worked it wasn't about the money like I, I always say we would have given the music away that wasn't never the point the point wasn't to sell music the point was to bring people together you sold music to pay the bills it's like even the swag that we've got out there the t-shirts and stuff I would give them away if I could I'm I, I made a, I made some swag to sell uh, so that we have a little bit of money to pay for the website and the stuff that we're doing it's the sales was never the driver of what we were doing. The community was the driver. And the reason we wanted the community was to, to change people's 
lives, like to bring people together because we know that's when things, that's when really good things can happen. That's also when bad things happen, when you fall into character, into community with bad people, when you, and, and you're gonna fall into community with somebody. Right. And so I saw that happen in a positive way. And then when the money thing, somebody came in with big plans for that and then things went sideways. So the new thing, I would really like to gather as much momentum online so that we can start to do live things like this around the country that are small, but that bring people together through songwriting conferences and concerts and whatever. But it's, we got to start by getting people to pay attention to something. So what was the coolest shock and awe thing that you can think of that you were able to do because you were John Thompson from True Tunes? <laughs> Uh, there have been definitely things where I was like, how did I get here? I will say that the biggest thing for me by far has was getting to work at the Cornerstone Festival, like going from being in the crowd at Cornerstone 84, 13, almost 14 years old, watching 77s, watching Res Band with my youth pastor, Greg Hill, who is here somewhere. I saw him here back there. Greg begging Greg to take me to Cornerstone, you know, um, because I couldn't drive yet. Um, and uh, going there and then seeing these bands and, and then in the future being able to not only be up on stage and be the main stage host and all that stuff, that's fun, no yeah. doubt about it, but also serving the artists, like being the one that's helping the people who make the thing work. That to me is the, is the, the special sauce, mm -hmm. like to be an important piece of the puzzle that helps something important happen, that, became the the biggest yeah. highlight for me. And Cornerstone was so important to me and so important to so many other people that for me to play that kind of role was was huge. It's not the kind of thing like, you know, it was fun to take kids from church here, for instance. Like when there was a band they really liked, I could say, do you want to go backstage and see them from the side of the stage? That was really fun. Like, you know, sure. I could I could do that and be the cool uncle that takes them, you know, backstage. Um, the craziest other thing was probably getting a photo pass for the U2 Zoo TV thing and getting up on the stage and taking pictures and, and then almost falling off the stage and having Bono with his hand on the back of my head holding me. And I thought, I thought he was just horsing around with me and he has his camera on my face and my face is on all the screens and he's doing this thing and, and I think he's just horsing around and he does that with everybody and then afterwards when we're back, we're leaving Anton Corbin, the famous photographer. I was such a dork, like I had no good gear. I have one little camera. I looked like a total amateur. I have a picture of Bono's eye and like his nostril because, um, but, but it was an article that was in True Tunes and, I, and you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. But, um, but afterwards when we're leaving, Anton was like, do you know what just happened? And I was like, I assumed he does that with everybody. And he's like, no, you were about to fall off the stage and the people had all moved because the, the little ledge I was on, they had all parted. You were just gonna fall into empty seats and they had all just moved and Bono was holding your head and, and, and I had no clue because I'm just smiling. <laughs> so that was, I don't know if that's a brag or like uh, I was pretty, once Randy Kirkman was there at the show and he was out in our seats and he saw my face up on the screen but he was like, what just happened over there? It's embarrassing but also cool. My perception of the motivation for rebuilding and expanding the True Tunes community is really to make a space 
so that people can be encouraged or comforted by those kind of stories as much as it is for you know for for you if i'm in your shoes so i want a space where i can tell this kind of story it works from it works from either side and so uh to you know yeah. th does that resonate i saw a canyon between these great artists and the audience that they could potentially be reaching but the canyon was really wide it was hard it was expensive to breach that canyon back in the 80s it was it, you had to have music videos and you had to have coverage in magazines and you had to tour and it was expensive to tour and you had to make records that were really expensive to record everything cost a lot of money and the record labels and the distribution mechanism was the only way to do that and so when I built True Tunes, the whole idea was to build one bridge over that canyon to help artists to connect with fans and fans to connect with artists. It was that simple. That's like in my manifesto when I was 14 was, I want to build a bridge between these things. And when I get the bridge built, the 77s should become the biggest rock band in the world. And you know, all the kids that like ACDC should also like Res Band and that kind of stuff. But once I get that bridge built, I want to go over it too. Like yeah. I want to make music for those people. Right. I want to go over it as a fan and I want to go over it as an artist. That was always part of the plan. Mm -hmm. And it's the same kind of thing now. I'm an author, I'm an artist, I'm a songwriter. Michelle's got music. All of my friends, I have so many friends in Nashville that are making amazing music and it's so hard to find an audience because everything is fragmented. So we so got to find a way to coalesce that thing back into some kind of focused group the way the festival did once a year 20,000 of us could get back together and and talk to each other what's step two that step one is is what's going on right now it's reestablishing the, the brand letting everybody know it's here and that you know come come to it uh, so how do you cut through the noise when when you've got the thing in place and it's one more channel and everybody's got the choice of all the different buttons now. How does True Tunes cut through in 2019 and afterward? I don't know. Okay. I mean, I, one person at a time. It's literally saying, can you please look at the website, read some articles, listen to the podcast. If you dig it, can you make a point of checking it out once a month, a couple times a month? And can you tell your friends about it? Mm -hmm. That's really, it's that simple. And, and if you really dig it, and you're a creative person, would you want to write something for it? Would you, you know, would you want to participate in it? That's the next yeah. phase is for it to not just be me doing everything. I want other people contributing to this thing. I hope that helps give you a sense of both the evening we had in Chicago last summer and the bigger picture, what we're trying to do with this relaunch of True Tunes. Thanks again to Randy Show for recording everything and to all the guests who came out and made that reunion so special. If you'd like to see some pictures, check out truetunes.com. As I climb up on my soapbox this time, I'm thinking about relationships and a word that gets thrown around so much these days, community. In fact, when a word becomes as common, even trendy as community, it can be challenging to push past the buzz factor and get to the real meaning. But it's one word and more importantly, one idea we just can't afford to move past. At our reunion event in Chicago and the follow-up event in Nashville, we were reminded of the impact that True Tunes had on people's lives. But the real story was that we were all a part of each other's lives. The star of the story wasn't True Tunes, it was the people off stage, and our human story can be messy. 
I was reminded of ways I didn't always handle relationships and people with care. Sometimes I was more attentive to the work than I was to the people. But God uses us despite our failures and our brokenness. We've all heard it said, what people desire more than anything is to know and to be known. We are designed to be a part of a group, not just anonymous cogs in a machine. Some of us come by that stuff naturally. For some of us, it takes work. Some of us come to community later in life after running away for years. Some of us are just getting started, while some are looking back on decades of God showing up in the weak places and making us strong. I encourage you, though, if you're not grafted into a community in real life, take care of that. Don't let the virtual community of social media act as a reasonable facsimile of community. Don't settle. When it's all said and done, love is the greatest thing of all, because God is love. When we love each other, God is there, and that's a beautiful thing. Okay, I'm climbing down off the soapbox now. And that's it for episode five. Muchos gracias to my co-producer and editor, Bruce Brown, for making everything sound so good. Bruce not only edits my copy and the audio, he also tracks down the song clips and creates the musical bed. Hats off to you, sir. And of course, thanks once more to our family at the Warehouse in Aurora for hosting that awesome reunion party in July, and to Randy Show for recording everything, and to Michael McDermott, Jeff Elbell, and the rest of our guests for making that night so special. If you missed the previous episode, you should definitely go back and check out our conversation with Elbel and with Glenn Kaiser. And thanks again to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for the special instrumental mix of Full Circle that serves as our theme song. And make sure to visit truetunes.com for all the show notes for this episode, including all of the music credits and links. And everything in the True Tunes podcast is protected by U.S. copyright law and is the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is John J. Thompson saying stay tuned and stay true. 